we shift our focus to Jesus as Son of God. Another very familiar title that is found throughout the gospel narrative. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? How does that affect a text? How does it bring theology to bear on a text? And how does it affect your life? This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part four in our six-part series, What's in a Name, with Pastor Paul Twiss. Today, Pastor Paul's text moves from Daniel chapter 7 to the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 63 and 64. Daniel's vision has come to life, and the scene shifts to Jesus, the promised Son of Man, at the end of his earthly ministry. He's being tried before the high priest and his council, following his betrayal and arrest at Gethsemane. Under questioning, Jesus agrees with his questioner that he is Christ, the Son of God, and then adds this, quote, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, End quote. These Hebrews know Christ is quoting from Daniel 7 and fly into a rage. Those who put him on the cross were blind to what was really happening. God's kingdom had arrived right under their noses. Here's part four of What's in a Name? We're considering the person of Christ, or more specifically, the names of Christ. So last week we were in Daniel 7 and we looked at Son of Man as a title for Jesus. And then tonight we consider Son of God. And to do that, there are many texts we could go to Uh, I chose to be in the trial scene in the Gospel of Matthew, so I invite you to turn there with me, Matthew chapter 26. And in order to fully understand the title, we will be um, turning around the Scriptures a little bit, but we'll mostly focus on just two verses in this trial scene, verse uh, 63 and 64, to help us orientate our minds to the context I'd like to read from verse 57 up until 68. So Matthew 26, verse 57 and following. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council was seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man 
seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So reads the word of the living God. In 1682, a two-volume book was published by the title of The Existence and Attributes of God. It was written by the Puritan Stephen Charnock, who had died just one year prior And in those two volumes, Stephen Charnock expounds the doctrines of God. It is impossible, I would say, to read that book and to not have your understanding of God enlarged. I remember reading those two volumes, very small print, no illustrations, and I was stuck on a submarine many feet below the ocean. Over the course of one summer, my understanding of God was radically changed for the better. Chapter after chapter, Stephen Charnock expounds in what would seem an exhaustive manner the person and the character of the Godhead. Now, chapter one, Charnock deals with just the mere existence of God, the existence of God. In chapter two, he deals with what he calls practical atheism. Practical atheism. He says, this is the inclination of the heart and the mind whereby we may profess to have faith in God, and yet we behave as if we have no knowledge of him. Charnock says, the testimony of works is louder and clearer than that of words. The frame of men's hearts must be measured by what they do rather than by what they say. He goes on to show that practical atheism is an ever-present danger for all of us. It is a deceitful creature, always poised at the door, ready to possess even the most experienced of Christians. The antidote, Charnock suggests, is that we would see God, that we would behold him. The antidote to practical atheism is that we would take in, gaze upon the Godhead, understanding that this is the only means by which a proper foundation for life is laid. It is the only means by which a proper foundation is laid whereby we can live as those who have a true and living active faith. In Charnock's words, he says there must be a supernatural principle before there can be a supernatural life. We must see God with eyes of faith as he has been presented to us in the scriptures, gaze upon him before we have any hope of living a life that testifies to faith in him. Last week, I closed with the exhortation that we would gaze at the sun. There was no to-do list. You might argue there was no application last week. It was simply a reminder 
that all that we do is affected by our view of Christ. Every thought that you have, every response to every situation, everything you say, everything you do is in some way connected to your view of Christ. Every pastoral situation, every spiritual issue is in some way connected to an insufficient view of Christ. And so in a world where sustained thought is a lost skill, in a world where fleeting attention spans are accepted as the norm, one of the most important priorities you can have is a regular, sustained meditation on the person of Christ. Last week, we considered Christ as the Son of Man, understanding that our souls have been made to behold Him, understanding that God knit your soul together in such a way that you have been designed to look at Him. You have been designed such that when you gaze upon the sun, your soul, the fibers of your being are strengthened. They are instructed and edified. You are equipped as you take Him in. We looked at Jesus as Son of Man, and we saw that He was a second Adam figure, entering into a fallen creation, walking in the footsteps of fallen humanity in order to redeem fallen creation. We saw that he is God, God come in the flesh whose reign lasts forever. And we saw that he was the suffering king and the means towards victory is a path of suffering. Tonight, we shift our focus to Jesus as Son of God, another very familiar title that is found throughout the gospel narrative. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? How does that affect a text? How does it bring theology to bear on a text? And how does it affect your life? We'll not only consider Jesus as Son of God, but you may have realized as I read this text that there is also a confession that he's the son of man. And I want to consider also, what does it mean in this text that the two titles are brought together? Son of God and son of man found back to back in the, in the gospel narrative. And then thirdly, we might ask, what does it mean that we, sons of men, children of Adam, are now declared to be sons of God? So you might think of this sermon as a pebble dropped into a still pool of water. The high priest drops a pebble when he asks the question of Jesus, are you the son of God? And we're just going to observe the ripples as they go out. The first ripple that we observe is that Jesus is the son of God, Jesus as the son of God. The second ripple we'll observe in this pool of water is the son of God as the son of man. And then the third ripple that we'll look at is sons of men, that is you and I, as sons of God. So let's begin then by asking the question what it means that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus as the Son of God. 
We're in the trial scene. It is the end of Jesus's life and ministry. This is the last major event before his crucifixion. Indeed, it is this confrontation that precipitates his death. Now, from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, the authorities have been seeking for a way to kill him. And this is the confession that they needed. What is so significant about Jesus affirming that he is the Son of God? Well, similar to last week, we need to understand that this title doesn't occur for the very first time here. It's not occurring in a vacuum by any means, but there is a biblical precedent that leads up to this confession. All the way through the Old Testament, there is what you might call a storyline, a storyline relating to the Son of God. To see that storyline clearly, we need to begin where all good stories begin, and that is in Genesis and in the garden. Now, you can turn there with me, keep a finger in Matthew 26, and just turn back to Genesis and chapter 1. Now, you know the story well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created all things. He created the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. What we must not miss about this familiar chapter is that there is a driving momentum towards the day in which God creates the pinnacle of the created order, and that is mankind. On the day in which he creates mankind, more space is given to that day than any other. We find the divine plural, let us, where we don't find it in any other day of creation, And of course, this day comes last. There is an importance given in the text to this day. He creates man in his own image, verse 27. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, Adam is not directly named as a son here. But it does seem when God says in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, that that is the language of sonship. Think about your own experience. Maybe your son or your daughter looks like you. Maybe they have the same mannerisms as you. Maybe they speak in the same way. God created man in his image after his likeness. If you turn the page over to Genesis 5, it's really interesting to note that when Adam has a son, it is described in the same way. Adam has a son, and in verse 3, we see that he fathered a son, how? In his own image, after his likeness. It's the same language because it seems to be the language of sonship. And then that is confirmed for us when we turn to to Luke, and you don't need to turn there now, but the genealogy of Luke traces Jesus' line all the way back to Adam, and it finishes by saying, Adam, the son of God. So Adam was the very first son of God. Now, what does sonship entail? I would say it entails a privilege and a responsibility. The privilege is that he has been created in the likeness of God after his image. That is not true for anything else in the created order. It is only mankind. The responsibility that comes with sonship is that he must rule, he must reign, he must represent God, as it were, as he establishes an order, an authority over creation. 
If we bring those two thoughts together, privilege and responsibility, we might sum it up by saying that the Son of God was to mediate God to the created order. He's created in the image of God, after his likeness. In some way, he looks like God, represents him, and he is to rule over creation. If we bring those two thoughts together, you might sum it up by saying the responsibility, the role of the Son of God was to mediate God to the created order. He was to rule in such a way that he made God known, much like an envoy or an ambassador represents and communicates his head of state or his king, so also with the Son of God. And you know how the storyline progresses. We get to Genesis chapter 3, man sins, he fails, he scorns his privilege, and he fails in his responsibility. And what that means is that from Genesis 3 onwards, there is a search. The search is on for a new son of God, for a son of God who will not fail as the first son of God failed, one who will embrace the privilege and fulfill the responsibility. Interestingly, as we work our way through this storyline, The next son of God that we find is the nation of Israel. We see this when we go to the Exodus account. When you read the Exodus account, what you see is that the the event of God drawing his people out of Egypt, separating the waters, delivering them from slavery, is described in particular language. Specifically, it is described in terms of light and darkness. It is described in terms of the separation of waters and the emergence of dry land. So a close reading of the text, as you think through the Exodus account and that language of light and darkness, separation of waters and emergence of dry land, it should start to ring some bells. We've heard this language before, namely in Genesis chapter 1. The point is that Moses writes about the Exodus event as a second creation or a recreative act. And just as in the first creation in Genesis 1, a son of God was found, so in this second creative act, a son of God is found. Specifically, it is Israel. God saves those people. He forms a nation and he calls them my son. And so now the theology of sonship The role of mediating God down to the created order is bestowed upon the nation of Israel. Now, there's a significant transition from Genesis to Exodus, from one son of God to the next, that we have to take note of. That transition is from individual Adam to corporate body Israel. It's a significant transition in the son of God storyline. More specifically, you might say the transition is from individual Adam to nation Israel. And the point to note is that all of a sudden, Son of God theology has now taken on a nationalistic nuance. All of a sudden, the Son of God role of mediating God down to the creative order will be carried out by a nation to the nations. So when Jesus confesses that he is the Son of God, 
The implications of that go far beyond the borders of Israel. He's claiming authority over the ends of the earth and all the nations. And already we're getting ahead of ourselves. Israel, the Son of God, fails. They fail in their task of mediating God to the nations as they disobey God's law and fail to honor him. In fact, it got so bad that in the time of the judges, there was nobody who wanted anything to do with Israel. All those surrounding nations, they wanted to stay away from Israel rather than looking in and seeing something altogether beautiful that they were inherently attracted to such that they wanted to worship the God of Israel. If you had to plan a journey in those days that would have naturally gone through Israel, you would have done anything you could have done to go round it and to avoid Israel. They utterly failed as the Son of God. And so the search continues. And we go from Israel back to individual, specifically the person of David. David is our favorite king. He's beloved of the Lord. He receives the covenant, the kingly covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's in that covenant that we find the language of sonship. God speaks to David and concerning his descendants, the Davidic line, he says, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. So now we keep moving forward in the son of God theology. Not only does it have an inherently nationalistic nuance, but it's now locked into kingship and the Davidic line. The son of God is a Davidic king and his role is to obey the law of the Lord And as he obeys, he mediates the character of God to Israel, understanding that as he does that, Israel will in turn flourish and Israel mediates the character of God to the nations. It's as if God has set up this mechanism, a domino effect, where the Son of God comes, succeeds in his kingly office, mediate God down, God goes out to the nations and the world will worship him. It is not an overstatement to say that the hopes of the world rest upon the shoulders of the Davidic king. And so it's with horror that we turn a few pages on from 2 Samuel 7 and we read that at the time when kings go out to battle, David stayed at home. The sin with Bathsheba is not simply moral failure, though it is that, gross moral marital failure. Far more than that, as he sins in 2 Samuel 11, all hope is lost for the nation of Israel and indeed the world. He sends the Davidic house into disarray. In turn, that puts Israel into disarray. It's not an overstatement to say that when David commits adultery with Bathsheba, that is the very first step for that nation going into exile. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Have you ever wondered, how could the religious leaders of Israel not have known that Jesus the Messiah would be arriving and ministering in power? Well, you might say that these leaders' gospel was different. Might their fear of losing their power grip over the people have made them callous to the truth of Messiah's coming? Likely, these leaders worked very hard for the power delegated to them by the Roman Empire. Very sad. The question is, how will you deal with the Son of Man? 
Are you in a comfortable place in your life and just wish to keep the Son of God at a distance? To learn more about the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts. There you'll be able to listen to this program again and any of the previous messages you may have missed. While you're on our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, would you consider giving financially to help this ministry move forward in its outreach in sharing Jesus Christ with many listeners? To make your gift of any size, select Donate on the homepage. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Join us tomorrow for part five in our six-part series, What's in a Name? I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.